0: Hello, friends! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Sabina Hossenfelder. She's a theoretical physicist, research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies, quantum gravity researcher, and an author. There are a lot of big questions in the world, like, does the past still exist? Do particles think? Was the universe fine-tuned for us? Do we have free will? And are we living in a simulation? Given that we don't have answers yet why not let a physicist have a crack at them? Expect to learn why physicists who say that they know how the universe started aren't telling the truth, whether we can compute a human brain, why no one gets any younger, if maths is the ultimate basis of reality, why there might be copies of us all out there in the universe, how your entire life could be the imagined history of a brain floating in space, and much more. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Crafted London. They are the number one men's jewellery brand On the planet, it is very difficult to find good men's jewellery that doesn't look too gaudy or too cheap or give you a green neck or fade or tarnish or break over time. And Crafted London have fixed all of this. Their pieces are really stylish. They come in gold and silver, custom designs. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. Plus, they come with a lifetime guarantee. If they break, for any reason, at any point that you have them, Crafted will send you a replacement piece for free there's necklaces chains pendants bracelets rings and earrings so if you are treating yourself or the man in your life to some new jewelry this is an amazing place to go they ship internationally so no matter where you are you can get this direct to your door and you can get 15% off everything site-wide it's the only discount that they do and you can get that by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and MW15, a checkout. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Element. Starting your day with Element in water is the best thing that you can do. You do not need to have coffee first thing. The system that caffeine acts on isn't even active for the first 90 minutes of the day. But your adrenal system that salt acts on is Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium. But more importantly than all of that, it actually tastes amazing. Their orange flavor is phenomenal. Their raspberry is great. And if you like sweet, spicy stuff, they've got a mango chili flavor, which is like a sober margarita to wake you up first thing in the morning. They are the exclusive hydration partner to tons and tons of high-level athletes, FBI sniper teams, and Marines, and tech leaders, plus everyday high performers around the world. They also have a no questions asked refund policy so you can buy 100% risk-free and there is an unlimited duration on the return. So even if you do not like it after a year, they will give you your money back and you don't even need to return the box. That is how confident they are that you'll love it. Head to drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom and you will get a free sample pack of all eight flavors from Element with your first box. That's drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Pure Sport, a revolutionary CBD and natural supplement company who want to help more people reconnect with their well-being. If you are struggling to sleep on a nighttime, their Unwind Blend is an all-natural mix of nootropic oil with CBD, ashwagandha, lavender, and chamomile crafted to help re-regulate your sleep cycle to assist you in achieving good quality restorative rest. The formulation is scientifically balanced to work with the neurotransmitters in your brain which release chemicals responsible for sleep. You will fall asleep more easily on a night time, stay asleep better throughout the night, and wake up feeling more rested and revitalized in the morning. You can also try their Mushroom Mind and Body Supplement, which contains six medicinal mushrooms, or their De-Stress Clear Mind Capsules to help nourish your brain health. Pure Sport are offering 20% off all full-priced items if you go to bit.ly slash cbdwisdom and the code mw20 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash cbdwisdom and the code mw20 at checkout. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Sabina Hossenfelder. Sabine Hossenfelder, welcome to the show. Hi Chris. You've got a quote at the start of your new book that says, It is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. It's from Carl Sagan. What's that mean to you?
1: When I came across this, I uh, I just thought this captures exactly what I'm trying to express with the book. Um, So it's very tempting to fall for some... Pleasant explanation uh, and try not to look at the evidence, but I think in the end it's better to actually look at the evidence. At least for me, so so that's been my conclusion. Because otherwise, you always have this feeling that you're lying to yourself.
0: Mm. Do you feel like your Twitter account is mostly you dashing the dreams of people who have uh, non-evidence-based ideas about what might be happening in the world or in the world of physics?
1: Well, except for the animal pictures, (laughs) basically. Um, But yeah, well, um, you know, partly the reason that I was writing this book is that I felt um, what I do on social media is a little bit too destructive, a little bit depressing almost. Um, If there are some headline that claims, well, soon we'll be able to send information faster than the speed of light with the quantum internet, or physicists have uh, created negative mass, or that kind of stuff, then I'm the one who has to say, well, actually, no, you can't do this, and it doesn't work, and no, we have not made contact with parallel universes, that kind of stuff. And I, I do think it's important, but it's a very one-sided picture of physics. It, it raises the impression that physics just tells you what you can't do what, what what isn't possible and I think physics has another side where it opens new possibilities it tells you what you can do um, it, it brings up um, new ideas that you might not have thought about otherwise.
0: Mm. So rather than just playing defense all the time there's the opportunity for you to put forward some ideas.
1: Well, not my own ideas. I'm talking about uh, stuff like the multiverse or, um, I mean, other ideas that have already, I would say, an almost established place uh, in the public mind is ideas like that, time slows down near black holes, or wormholes, or maybe teleportation. Uh, those are all ideas that came out of physics. And I think it's, it's really inspirational. And uh, I understand that people like it, and they want to hear more about it. And, and so I thought, well, I'll write a book about all those big ideas.
0: Speaking of ideas that have captured the public consciousness, the simulation hypothesis is something that's been thrown around an awful lot. What's your problem with the simulation hypothesis?
1: So the simulation hypothesis is the idea that our reality is just a computer program, basically. And uh, once you buy into this, uh, there needs to be some kind of programmer who has written the code. And um, God knows what this programmer is doing. Maybe he is God. Um, and so I think that as um, you know, a talking point over a glass of wine, uh, that's well and fine. Or maybe if philosophers want to go on about it, that's also fine. But if you claim that it's actually based on science, that's when I get a problem. Because it's a pretty big claim about what it takes to reproduce our observations. And uh, it, it's a claim that says, well, you can reproduce everything that we observe, um, with uh, an algorithm put on a computer and I want to see the algorithm I'm and like, show it to me because basically um, you just claim that you have a theory of everything and uh, that falls into the terror of uh, the foundations of physics, which is where I work and so i think philosophers who um write about it and make statements like oh well um you don't have to think about um the computational capacity of the computer because if there's some corner of the universe where no one's looking at the moment you don't have to compute it i'm like yeah well <laughs> you know show me how you want to write this into the code so i'm i'm just not buying it i think the, those people are um, they're trying to get away too cheaply
0: because it's a problem that's put forward as a philosophy problem, right? It's like a, an idea playing with interesting ways that the universe perhaps could exist. But I think your argument is that you need to drag that across into physics. It's not really a question of philosophy so much as it is a question of physics.
1: Well, it was put forward by a philosopher, and it has certainly been discussed by philosophers. Like I think David, uh, what's his name, Chalmers, has just written a book about it, um, which I haven't really read. I've looked at it, but I I will not um, pretend that I actually read the whole thing. Uh, and it, it's it's fine to discuss you know on this abstract basis maybe one day there'll be someone who'll be able to write a code on some kind of computer you know on that level but when you when you're making a claim that it is actually possible for we currently know about the laws of nature and what we know about computers then I think that's pushing it too far and i think that some people who have made claims about it like like Elon Musk for example and um uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is uh, one of them who who's made statements about it I, I think they they overemphasize how much of it is actually based on science. And, and that's the point where I get a problem.
0: Which bit is not based in science? The fact that we don't have the computing power or the algorithms to be able to do this?
1: Well, we don't have the algorithms. We don't even know how to do it. Like, I mean, there, there are really basic problems with um, how do you describe a chaotic system? And this is something, uh, just to stick with this example, that climate physicists uh, have to cope with uh, in reality. And, it, and it's really difficult because, uh, as you probably know, um, you have something like the Navier-Stokes equation. It's scale invariant. So, strictly speaking, you can't just ch- chop it off at a finite grid. Um, what is you that? Have to...
0: Go 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 into that. <laughs>
1: Well, um, what, the Navier-Stokes equation? or yeah, finite... I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar oh, with either uh, of those oh, things. Oh, the, the, Navier, the Navier-Stokes equation is the equation that describes how um, fluids and gases behave. Uh, for example, the atmosphere, but also oceans, water, uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, so um, it's like the central equation that you have to solve on a computer if you want to describe the weather or the climate uh, in the long run. And uh, this equation has the property that it's scale invariant, which uh, basically means it, um, it, it draws on all different scales, like the long ones and the very short ones. Uh, but if you want to calculate what happens for the globe, you can't actually, on a computer, you can't really calculate it on all scales. So um, what you have to do is you put a grid on it. Um, And um, the resolution of the grid depends on whether you want to do a calculation on a country basis or on on the entire globe and for what time span. But typically for climate models, it's right now, I think something on on the order of uh, several tenths of kilometers and maybe for weather models, they can go down to one or a few kilometers. So I'm I'm not a climate scientist, so I hope this is roughly right. It should be kind of in, in that order of magnitude. Uh, but that's clearly not scale invariant. Um, So you've modified the equations uh, and that has consequences. So they're they're just situations which those models will not correctly predict. And we know this, climate scientists know this, uh, whether people know it, it's a problem. And so people who are talking about the simulation hypothesis kind of totally ignore the problem that we have with putting our reality on a computer.
0: And that's only at the scale of a world or perhaps even a country with the grid size or the pixel, kind of the pixel equivalent of one square kilometer, perhaps. So trying to make something that's Planck length across an entire universe is significant. Okay, I understand. So if we can't simulate a universe, can we create one?
1: <laughs> well, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I, I made a video about this, and I was trying to argue that um, if everything we know about... Um, the early stage of our universe is correct that's a pretty big if but let's just assume it is correct then the answer is yes quite possibly one day we'll be able to make a universe and a lot of people thought I was joking because they know me as someone who who usually says no you can't do this this is all rubbish don't believe it and this was another reason why I wanted to write the book because I felt that I've manoeuvred myself into a corner where I, I'm taking this very, this very negative, destructive point
0: of view. Mm. How is it that it could be possible for us to create a universe but not simulate one? Well,
1: um, <laughs> well, that's, that's possible, a very good point. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's. It depends on the question what you mean by um, a simulation Uh, and what people normally talk about. They talk about a computer that has been programmed by someone. And that's something which you would not be able to do with this universe. Um, You would just create the conditions under which it comes into existence uh, and then what uh, at least for for we currently know about how those things work, it would create a small bubble, basically, and that would pinch off from our universe. So it goes away. You have, you, you you don't control it. Um, you don't program it. Um, it probably inherits most of the conditions from our universe and um, you can never get into contact with it again.
0: <laughs> would you ever actually be able to know if you'd created one in that case?
1: Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, you have to think about some observables, observables that would be uh, related to it, and people have thought about some. Um, unfortunately, it would look pretty much like a tiny black hole, so it might be very difficult to tell apart. Uh, but um, I should probably add, like, this is not something we're going to do in the next 1,000 or maybe 10,000 uh, years. Uh, it, it would require to put... Um, macroscopic size of material so estimate say something like 10 kilograms into a particular quantum state where uh, that kind of stuff uh, it could happen um, so it's theoretically possible there's nothing in principle that stands in the way of one day doing it but it's certainly not something that's that's going to happen in our lifetime
0: okay no new universes just yet so what about free will that's something else that's been popularized people like Dan Dennett and Sam Harris over the last few years actually had a friend who uh i spiraled into a three-week depression by sending him a video of sam harris explaining free will on joe rogan and uh after that he came out on the, the other side actually being quite thankful for it but for those three weeks i'm sorry luke um what about physics relationship to free will what what have you come to believe about that
1: yeah, I've, I've, I've been there, but it took me much longer than three weeks. Um, so it, it's one of the reasons why uh, my book has kind of a warning uh, in the beginning, where, like some of the things that we're going to talk about uh, are not easy. Uh, and I think that it's one of those points. Uh, but I also think uh, that... Um, you know, everyone who knows something about physics um, will stumble over this problem sooner or later. So let's just talk about it and then you can get through it and come out on the other side. And, and I hope that my book facilitates that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm basically I'm I'm uh, I'm with uh, Sam. Uh, I like his book. Uh, I mean, to begin with, it's a very short book, <laughs> so I can really recommend it. You get through it very quickly. I like the book, except for the one paragraph that he has about physics. Well, I, I think that this wasn't quite right. It was something about the Planck scale, which the uh, book would have been better without that paragraph. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so, so there's this basic problem that um, for all we know about the, the fundamental laws of nature, they are a combination of uh, determinism. Well, the future is predicted by what happened in the past, and then every once in a while there's some random event that comes from quantum mechanics, but you can't influence it um, because nothing influences it. It's entirely random. And um, now, whether you think that this rules out free will or doesn't depends on what you mean by free will. So this is why there is so much debate about it. So the way that I've tried to approach the problem in my in my book uh, is by just First, explaining what we know about um, the laws of nature, which is what just said, this combination of determinism with the uh, occasional random quantum jump. And then you can ask, well, does this mean that free will does not exist? What do you make out of this? Now, personally, my conclusion from this is just, well, free will doesn't exist. Let's get over with it um, and, you know, think about ourselves in a different way. Um, But, of course, you can try to come up with different definitions for free will. And this is something that David Alberts has done, for example, and other people have put forward slightly different um, definitions. And this is all fine with me so long as we know that we're talking about different things.
0: Mm. What is it that's happening at the quantum level that's causing this random chance? Because as far as I was aware it means that had you have gone back and run the same period of time again, that something different could have happened. But I I thought that given the initial conditions, everything is predetermined from there. But it seems like you're saying there is a genuine roll of the dice here, which could one time come up with a one and the next time come up with a three of some kind.
1: If you take quantum mechanics seriously, the way that we use it right now, um, that's exactly what happens. Um, Of course, you can't actually go back in time and run it again. (laughs) So, so there's a slight problem with that. But at least the way that the theory works, um, there are occasionally those measurement events um, for which you can't predict the outcome. You can only predict the probability of getting a particular outcome. Uh, And uh, those are generally random. They're they're indeterministic. So quantum mechanics is an indeterministic theory. But of course, um, quantum mechanics may fundamentally not be correct. It may just be an approximation to something else that's going on and that something else might be deterministic again. Um and then as you certainly know, there's also the many words interpretation which tries to do away with uh the, the measurement update uh, entirely. So then you only have the deterministic evolution left. So it's it's somewhat controversial. But um Yeah, I mean, I think for what the discussion about free will is concerned, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You know, you you either have a deterministic evolution with the occasional random event or you have a deterministic evolution without the occasional random event. But in both cases, I find it difficult to make sense of free will.
0: Yes, because am I right in thinking the many worlds is where you branch off each time that something occurs? Is that right?
1: yeah basically so when in in the standard interpretation which is often called the Copenhagen interpretation um you make a measurement um you collapse the wave function in one into one definite outcome but you don't know exactly what so th- which outcome so so that's that's the indeterminism uh in the many worlds interpretation you don't collapse the wave function you just say well now there there are two universes or three or four or five uh, depending on how many possible outcomes uh, There would have been. um, And each of them happens in its own universe.
0: Yeah. So what that would mean is that each universe is deterministic because you are following down the path of one. If you continue to go down that, that would mean that that is the only way that that could have come out. And all of the others are also deterministic. Is that right?
1: Um no, actually, what's deterministic is the entirety of all universes right,
0: but if understood. you if
1: you are in one of those universes, it'll still look indeterministic, and this is exactly what we see right It looks indeterministic
0: ah, I see, so is it right you You often hear that if we had known the initial conditions of all of the matter at the beginning of the big bang, we could have accurately predicted everything that was going to occur for the rest of time going forward. Is that not true?
1: Well, in the many worlds interpretation, it would be true for the collection of all those parallel worlds. Um, in our universe, um, if you collapse the wave function, it's not true because you get this—you uh, get this random um, quantum element—and it's not necessarily the case that um, those quantum um events remain small they can certainly grow into macroscopic differences and this is what uh, schrodinger tried to illustrate with his famous uh, cat thought experiment uh, so he was trying to say look it could be that um you, you have uh, a cat that's either dead or alive depending on whether or not an atom decays and so what it basically does is that it amplifies this uh, indeterministic outcome from a tiny macroscopic quantum thing, which is this atomic uh, nucleus, uh, to a big thing, which which is a cat. But it could be you or it could be the entire planet, you know, if you, I don't know, you blow up a bomb or something like that.
0: Going back to the beginning of the universe then, what are people getting wrong with the way that they currently look at the Big Bang, the origins of the universe? What are the claims that you've been... Uh, beating over the head on Twitter <laughs> or elsewhere.
1: Yeah. So, so the problem is that um, we have a fairly well established. theory of how the universe evolves. And yeah, there are some niggly bits with dark matter and dark energy, uh, but uh, let's leave this aside for the moment. So we have Einstein's theory of general relativity that tells us how the universe as a whole um, changes in time if we know the matter content, matter and energy content. So we can use this to extrapolate the present state back in time by using those equations. And uh, so what happens is that at some point those equations just break down And uh, we end up with a state at which the energy density and also the curvature of the universe was infinitely large. So this Mm -hmm. is what's called the Big Bang. And uh, now the problem is that um, most physicists, me included, think um, that this is probably not what actually happened. It just means that uh, those equations break down and we would have to use a better theory. So that would be a quantum theory of gravity, but we don't have it. So um, how did the universe begin? Well, we don't know because we don't have this theory. Now, of course, a lot of physicists are unhappy with this state of affairs. And uh, what they try to do is that they kind of modify the equations at an early time. Uh, And then they attach a different story to the beginning of the universe. So instead of a big bang, you might instead have a big bounce. Like this is something which is popular in in certain cycles. So you have a previous universe which collapses and then it starts to expand again. So there's this bounce uh, in the middle and those bounces could repeat. And then you get a cyclic universe, but but it doesn't have to be the case in in some scenarios. It's just a single bounce. Um, but it could be other things, you know, and other people have claimed that we came out of a black hole and it could have been a higher dimensional black hole. So it could have five dimensions or it could have been some kind of collision between higher dimensional membranes or something with a gas of strings. Or some people say maybe it didn't have any geometry, but it was just some kind of network. So there are all kinds of stories and the problem I have with those stories is that they make a simple story more complicated, which isn't something that a scientist should do. So I think the honest answer uh, can give as physicists to the question, how did the universe begin, is we don't know. What I know this is unsatisfactory, <laughs> but I think that, that's uh, that's how it is.
0: What is the fundamental problem that physicists are bouncing up against or coming up against, bounce might be the wrong word, with all of these uh, extravagant stories that they're trying to tell about what might have happened before the Big Bang or to create the Big Bang, what is the fundamental problem? Is it the something from nothing?
1: Um, that's actually an even more difficult problem. Uh, no, it's got something to do with the with the type of theory that we currently use, um, which is this combination of... Um, description of the state of a system at one moment in time it's normally called an initial state but somewhat confusingly could also be at the final time Um, so this is just um, one specification of the state at one moment in time and then we have some equation by which we can tell from this one initial state what happens at any other time Uh, And so the way that it works for the universe is that we take an initial state uh, in in the early phase of the universe. It it can't be exactly at the Big Bang because, as I said, this is a singularity, so it doesn't work, but it could be something after this. And then you apply um, your evolution law. So in the simplest case, that's just Einstein's equations. Uh, And then you can calculate how the universe should look like today, and you can compare this uh, to observations. And if it works, you say, bingo, okay, good theory. Uh, and, and now if you look at uh, at all those other explanations, basically what you do is you, you attach a more complicated story before this. And um, this is something which you can always do. Um, it's allowed by our theories, uh, but it makes the theory completely ambiguous because there are many different ways that you can do it. And it's something that the scientific method um, actually doesn't allow um, which is why I think it's it's a problem that we can't really resolve with the theories that we currently have. It, it's, it's possible that at some point we'll come up with a different type of theory um, that might be able to overcome this limitation. But at least for now, I, th- I think we're stuck with it.
0: It seems to me like there's a lot of problems or uh, phys- uh, theoretical physics is kind of bouncing off the limit of a bunch of the current theories that we have I had Michio Kaku on the show speaking to him and it seemed like his explanations there's always caveats here and there there's always something that's like oh we don't quite know about this but it's sort of a best guess and we've got this but we need to add 11 dimensions in in order to make it work and there's a lot of assumptions like I'm I, you know I appreciate I'm bro my way through this right but it, it seems like the the has it, it seems unsubstantial or insubstantial at the moment what we have to describe the universe, and that this is causing people to retrofit stories around what's happening in order to be able to make the theories work.
1: Yes, right. And all of this is entirely unnecessary to actually explain what we observe. Um, so so that's the problem with it. So you, so you get those uh, multiple stories um, that can all be made to fit to the current observations. And then, if you turn if you turn it around, um, it has the consequence that you can't use observations to tell those stories apart.
0: Interesting one. Talking about how the universe began, what about how it's going to end? Do we big crunch, big freeze? What's the other one? Big heat? Is there a heat death? Big,
1: big, uh, big grip. Yeah. Big grip. That the was heat it. death is also one of them. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, how are we going to end? How's it? How's it all going to finish?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid the, the answer is, again, we don't know. Um, in, in this case, it's I think it's easier to understand. Uh, so if we're trying to say how the universe is going to end, we have to extrapolate the current state of the universe uh, into the future, possibly over trillions of years. Um, and uh, the problem is that there could be some physical processes that are just very rare, Uh, And or they are so small that we haven't been able to measure them. Um, Well, one example could be that the cosmological constant is not actually constant, but it might very, very slightly been changing. And now over over trillions of years or something like this, this could be the decisive factor for the fate of the universe. And it's just something that we we can never rule out. So basically, what happens is that if we extrapolate the current state into the future, the the uncertainty just blows up and in the end, you can't say anything. So it's kind of an interesting mind game, I guess, uh, to try to figure out, assuming that nothing else happens. The cosmological constant is actually constant, and there are no other processes that we haven't yet heard of, uh, and so on and so forth. You can try to speculate what's going to happen. But I would say don't take it too seriously.
0: If nothing was to change, if there's no uh, spooky alterations hiding in the future, what do you think would be most likely to expect in that case?
1: Um, I think if I if I remember correctly um, at least in the current standard model of cosmology it, it'd be the heat death so it's because the cosmological constant uh, speeds up um, the expansion of the universe so the um, Galaxies become more and more distant to each other, and then the stars gradually die, and they collapse to black holes. Everything everything will be dark, and then the black holes evaporate, and uh, you have this leftover gas of elementary particles, and, and that's pretty much it. But, I mean, if you have another theory, like uh, Roger Penrose, for example, has this idea of a cyclic universe, then the whole thing eventually transitions into a new kind of Big Bang. Uh, so I know this is making this a little bit vague, but I mean, he has some mathematics to show for. And I think it's not entirely crazy. I, I actually have quite some sympathy for it, but I'm, I'm not really sold on it, I guess.
0: Would you say, speaking of mathematics and Roger Penrose's work, is, is mathematics like the ultimate language or the basis of reality? Is that what everything is built on? <laughs>
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Believe it or not, I've actually thought about this for for quite some bit. Uh, But it's certainly the case that currently it's the best thing that we have. And I think it'll continue to be the best thing uh, for quite some time. We haven't fully exploited its its potential, especially when it comes to a chaotic or complex systems that we just uh, talked about. We've barely begun to understand how the mathematics works. Um, but how how are we to tell if that's the best thing ultimately? Like we we've barely just begun to understand nature and to try to formulate our uh, hypotheses about it uh, in, in forms of mathematics. Maybe in a hundred thousand years, somebody will come up with something better than mathematics.
0: What else? What else could there be? I don't understand what could be better than mathematics.
1: Well yeah I guess that's the problem right maybe maybe we're just not smart enough um so um I, I certainly hope that um uh, given time uh, there will be a more a more sophisticated uh, species on this planet and uh, god knows what they will come up with but w- one thing that i've played with um is that it, it is in, in principle possible to do science without using mathematics as an intermediary and we actually do this when we do computer simulations to some extent so the way that we currently do computer simulations is that we Um, We take the mathematics that um, we have extracted from from observations, and then we formulate it in terms of an algorithm, and we put that on a computer. So we use mathematics as this middleman um, to get the simulation. But strictly speaking, you don't actually need this. You could try to find another system that um, mimics the thing you want to describe directly, and actually, um, this is being done uh, in quantum simulations. So, there, well, for one thing, there are certain types of quantum computers uh, that are based on this idea. Uh, but more generally, you can, you can simulate certain the properties of certain fundamental particles. For example, the Higgs is one example that people have looked at, but also things like uh, Madrana p- particles and so on. You can simulate them in condensed matter systems and um, now again this is using mathematics as an intermediary yes but strictly speaking you don't you don't need it you could just say well i take the simulation in and by itself and i just try to figure out what it tells me about this other system so so you can map reality directly to reality and uh, i think that that's kind of a different way to do science that we haven't explored further enough and maybe that's, that's the way that we will be able to go beyond mathematics at some point. But this is like really, really far out there, wildest speculation.
0: Is it true that other alien civilizations would have had to have discovered mathematics as well? I, I often hear about mathematics being a universal language of the universe and stuff like that. Is there any legs to that?
1: It seems very plausible to me, but uh, how are we to know? Right? We, uh, we haven't spoken to any alien species. Um, so, I mean, it's certainly, the, it's certainly the case that mathematics is kind of a universal description of certain regularities. Um, and, and so it, it seems plausible to me that this probably would have been the case. But um, I guess we'll have to wait until we meet those aliens to find out.
0: I suppose if you were to think about any alien sat on its little green planet, and it was to look up at the sky at night and it would say there is a point of light in the sky there is another point of light in the sky there is another point of light in the sky like i guess inferred from that is look that is the fundamental basis of counting right there's you've got some mathematics in front of you and i guess everything else from there all the way up to e equals mc squared is just more of <laughs> counting counting stuff and manipulating it
1: yeah, that that's how the argument uh, normally goes. But but again, I mean, this is kind of very strongly based on on our experience of the world. Um, so how are we to tell that not aliens uh, would see reality completely differently?
0: Mm. You mentioned earlier on about the cosmological constant, which is part of this, or is used to justify the fine-tuned theory of the universe the fact that you have this unbelievable sort of knife edge that a bunch of different uh, characteristics of this universe, gravity, strong, weak nuclear force, cosmological constant. Am I right in thinking that if any one of these was even ever so slightly different, that basically we probably wouldn't exist and the likelihood of it occurring seems super, super low and therefore people say, look, this is obvious that the universe has been fine-tuned for life, but that's also super contested. Can you go into the fine-tuning theory for me?
1: Yeah, so this is an argument which has been made for a long time, and it works pretty much the way that you just summarize it. You, you take those constants that we have uh, in the fundamental laws of nature. Um, I think there are 26 of them. It depends on how you count. You know, a lot of those constants are just zero, for we know, like the mass of the photon, and then you can you can argue over does it count as a constant if it's zero um so you know a splitting house uh, but um yeah, so, so you can ask stuff like if the cosmological constant was a little bit larger uh, or if it was a little bit smaller wh- what would happen and uh, or you can ask about um uh, the fine structure constant um that, What's that um the fine structure constant that's the sets the strength of the electromagnetic interaction alpha um, so, so what would happen if we made this a little bit larger or smaller, or the gravitational uh, so on and so forth? And in, in in a lot of those cases, the answer is something would go badly wrong. Um, stars wouldn't be able to shine or um, the galaxies uh, would never be able to form, everything would collapse to black holes, or the the entire universe might collapse uh, immediately, or it would be impossible to form any kind of complex molecules that we think are are necessary for life. Uh, And uh, people have gone through a lot of examples uh, of that type. And um, some have taken this as an opportunity to say, well, that looks really unlikely that something like this would have happened by chance. There must have been a creator. Um, uh, and then there are, on the other side, there are physicists who say, well, this seems very unlikely to have been the case. Therefore, there must be a multiverse. Uh, so they're kind of uh, two sides of the same uh, coin, so to, so to say, um, though they're both. Uh, exactly opposite uh, to some extent but they come out of the same idea which is that it seems like there's something in need of an explanation uh, which is why are the constants of nature exactly those Now, the problem with this entire argument is that we have no way of quantifying the probability of this happening. So if you tell me, well, it seems really unlikely, I would ask you, well, um, how do you know? I mean, it's not like you can collect a sample and ask how often does it happen? Because we have only this one set of constants of nature and we, we have no way of telling how likely or unlikely it would have been. Um, So typically these arguments work with um, some kind of statement about what is or isn't a small change in the constants of nature. But this you can also question, like, how small is small? And uh, why is this too small? And uh, why not this other thing? And so I think this is all ill-defined. And I'm, I'm totally unconvinced by any of those arguments. There's also the curious fact um, that uh, in, in the past couple of years, you, you wouldn't believe it, but every once in a while there's actually progress on these matters. Um, some physicists have come up with possible combinations of the constants of nature that are very different from the ones that we have in our universe, but that still seem to allow for complex chemistry uh, to happen. So... Physicists don't really talk about life, but it, it seems quite plausible that the, these other combinations of the constants of nature would also allow for um, complex chemistry and possibly even life. So, um, you know, I think this, this argument is really just wrong, and people should stop talking about it.
0: <laughs> well, um, it's cool to think that there's another combination out there that would allow complex Uh, life to evolve because that I mean that would do away with the fine-tuned theory overall right that you have another version of this that could work and I I really like the idea that even though if we were to look I think it's the cosmological constant that's a, a, a very small number or there's a couple of others is it like the weak nuclear force is an unbelievably small number compared with some other numbers that are in the bunch of constants When you talk about how much you want to change that by, as you said, who is to define what would be a large or a small change? Who is to define whether that's a large or a small number? And then when you talk about something being fine-tuned by design, you're talking about something being moved by small amounts. But if you're the person that's already creating before that a decision on what big and small is, then it's just you making, I guess, like a a value judgment or a pre-designed judgment on whether or not you think it should change.
1: Yeah, uh, that's one way to look at it. Um, it normally, um, physicists rather arbitrarily say um, if if a change is of size one, then that's large, uh, and everything that's below uh, that that order becomes very subjective. But then you can say is, is it smaller than one over a hundred, or is it smaller than one over a thousand? that would be small. But of course, you could just have started with, um, as you say, one over a thousand uh, or something and then measure everything relative to that. Um, And and so this is exactly where uh, this argument that physicists put forward becomes circular.
0: Mm. What's your view on Boltzmann brains? I learned about these last year, that there's potentially (laughs) other versions of us floating out there in the ether and that me and you in this entire conversation might just be the brief flickering of some brain a million trillion billion miles away from here uh and i might just be imagining it all
1: yeah uh, so um indeed it might not have been uh, a whole version of you but maybe just your brain which uh has the illusion that it's talking to me um yes yeah, so that that's one thing which um comes out of statistical mechanics if you take it too seriously. Um, So basically the idea is that if the universe goes on forever, which um, as we already discussed previously uh, is likely to happen if you just extrapolate the, the current state into the future, then all kinds of combinations of fundamental particles that are in the universe should happen at some point provided the laws of nature fulfill a certain property, which is called ergodic, which I'll come back to in a, in a second. And then it can happen that just coincidentally, you know, the um, elementary particles combine to form some particular molecule. Uh, and it takes a really long time. You know, we're, we're talking trillions and trillions uh, of years. Um, and then you wait a little bit longer and they combine to form something that's like a cell. And if you wait long enough, it would form a brain. And then in fact, if you just wait long enough, it'll form any possible brain, uh, brains that will think all possible thoughts. Um, but the downside of this is um, that the larger the thing, um, the shorter it'll persist because it's surrounded by all this randomness, um, which which comes from the interaction of the other molecules, which have not spontaneously assembled to a, a large thing. So um, the shorter the thing lives, the more likely it is. And this is what gives rise to this idea of the Boltzmann brains. So somewhere at the end of the universe, in the very, very far future, there are all those brains spontaneously assembling its, themselves, just thinking one thought, oh, hello, I'm here, or hello, I'm talking to Sabine and then they they fall apart again and I see you laughing and yeah it it seems a little bit ridiculous Um, but the thing is that if you if you take this seriously uh, what we know about uh, the fundamental laws of nature and about statistical mechanics then you kind of have to bite into this sour apple Um, I I think that's a German idiom but I, I hope it I hope it translates Um, And so a lot of people think this is just silly, um, but I think it actually tells us something about the laws of nature, Um, because if you want to prevent this from happening, then we can conclude that the laws of nature can't be a Godic um and that's a statement about the properties of those fundamental laws there are actually some indications i should add that um gravity or quite possibly the strong nuclear force might not be agodic and so i think that this is an inter- interesting factual um, so it's not quite as silly as it sounds as <laughs> at,
0: at first why would forces change within the same universe just because they're far away
1: oh um no the the forces don't change so so the argument is that this um um this statement that all possible combinations of fundamental particles happen at some time, this is only correct for um, laws of nature that have certain properties. So, um, and, and this is this uh, egodicity. I mean, this is basically what it means. So if the theory is uh, then then all these possible things will happen uh, at some point. But this is not the case for all possible interactions that you can think of. In particular, if you have some interactions that are very strongly bound, which the strong nuclear forces, it makes it highly implausible, you know, you, you you take uh, you put some particles together and they get stuck uh, like in a bound state like the strong nuclear force uh, binds together quarks in in a proton uh, or something like this um, why should everything that can happen um, also actually happen at some point why can't they just why can't they just remain stuck together forever? Uh, and, and so th- this kind of interaction uh, runs you into problem like problems like this. And uh, t- to be fair, uh, Boltzmann, when he was thinking about this, didn't know anything about the strong nuclear force. So it probably just wasn't a problem that, that didn't occur to him.
0: Does that mean that it's wrong to say that me and you would be having this conversation further away? Is that the same, the exact same model that people are using, that if the universe outside of the observable universe is infinite, then it means that me and you are having this conversation a million different times in a million different ways?
1: Well, the way that I would put it is that it's either that or the laws of nature are not ergodic, and then we learn something from it.
0: Mm, Interesting. What do you mean? You talk about knowledge and humans being predictable. What do you mean there?
1: Um actually, David Deutsch talks about this, so I went and interviewed um David Deutsch, which was very interesting and he has this argument uh that knowledge uh can't be predictable because if you could uh predict the knowledge uh from what we already know, then it wouldn't be new knowledge uh which makes sense uh, and I think it's also something um that we see happening in in physics, but also in other disciplines of science, is that any kind of new theory that we develop Um, It it requires this intuitive leap. It requires something new. You can't just, strictly speaking, deduce it from what came previously. So what you see a lot is that, uh, in hindsight, um, physicists often make up some kind of story for how they came to this conclusion. It was deduced from what they had previously heard and so on and so forth. But it seems to me there's always like an... An element of magic in between somewhere, you know, where where there's this inside uh, which comes in. And I think this is this is what what David uh, is getting at. I should say, though, that this is like something at the at a very high emergent level. Um, You could on the level that we are talking about it um you, you could make an argument that fundamentally if you're talking about quasi-clones uh, and uh, the the laws that they behave um by it might well have been deterministic uh it's just that uh for practical purposes we we would never have been able to predict it
0: do you think does that mean that knowledge is discovered or created
1: well i guess both right um so sometimes some types of knowledge uh, you discover, um, others you create. I, I, I don't. I, I know people discuss this a lot when it comes to mathematics, but I've I've always been kind of a little bit ambiguous about it. I, I don't see that it has to be one or the other. It could well be. It could well be both.
0: Got you. When it comes to consciousness as well, obviously we've spoken about free will, spoken about simulation. Is it possible for us to compute consciousness?
1: Um, That's a very good question. Um, As you probably know, Roger Penrose um, takes the point of view that it's not possible. Um, He has an argument that's based on uh, Gödel's theorem, and I have an interview with him uh, in my book about it. I'm, I'm not really convinced by this argument, uh, but then, you know, he's a Nobel Prize winner and I'm not. So maybe you should listen to him and not to me. This is why I have the interviews in my books so and you don't just hear what I think. Um, So, um, he thinks there's an an uncomputable element uh, to consciousness, and um, so the the laws of nature that we currently use, they are computable. And uh, I think this is one of the reasons why he thinks um, that there's something about quantum mechanics uh, which we don't yet fully understand, and so he has put forward some uh, alternative uh, theories to quantum mechanics where um, he thinks this element of consciousness uh, comes in. Um, So I think it's interesting. Um, I'm not convinced that it's quite right, but uh, then maybe there's something worthwhile um, to it. So if he's right, then it would mean that um, artificial intelligence, at least in the the way that we can currently formulate it in terms of algorithms run on computers, would never be really
0: conscious. Yeah, well, I think that's maybe about 10 years ago. When did superintelligence come out? 2014, Nick Bostrom's book, something like that. Uh, When that came out and I read that, I was adamant that the artificial general intelligence apocalypse was going to be with us within 10 or 15 years. Uh, And it it seems like the AI safety community, the discussion around AGI in general, has kind of switched a little bit in that time. It's not like I've got my finger on the pulse of the coolest stuff in the development of it, but just from my sort of perspective. And it seems now like well-defined problems are things that artificial intelligence is getting incredibly good at. And poorly defined problems basically haven't made much progress at all, as far as I can see. And it's the poorly defined problems that are precisely where the general from AGI would come from. And I think that it seems like some of the, uh, what did they call him, Um <laughs> some of the uh, bostrodamus uh, concerns the pre-apocalyptic people it seems like that's changed. It seems like the narrative around this sort of discussion has changed precisely because of the fact that we're having more and more difficulty in computing this stuff.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, they're also increasingly running into resource limits, um, is my understanding. Like those uh, like running computing those, power? Yeah, computing power, energy. Um, and, and then there's the problem that, you know, all the stuff with the, uh, what do they call the hyperparameters that have to be... Uh, found out somehow and, uh, oh, those um, neural networks uh, that are typically used for artificial intelligence, um, they um, have what's called hyperparameters that have to be chosen um, so the network can properly learn. And that's a little bit of black magic, like where do those hyperparameters come from? And there's a lot of discussion, at least that's my understanding. And like you, I I don't really work on this. I'm just following it uh, from the outside. Um, that um, because of this black magic, it's kind of irreproducible what, what what they achieve because you don't know how did they come up with those uh, parameters, how often did they try it, how often did they fail, um, and so there's now um, a, a move in in the community where they where they're trying to make this more transparent so that it's it's easier to figure out what was actually done.
0: Mm. I I part of me feels grateful, I think, that giving a uh, self-reprogramming, super-intelligent AGI a little bit more time to come around while we could perhaps get some more wisdom to come along with the technology. That seems like a pretty good idea to me. Uh, even if it's not by choice, it's simply by programming language restriction and our own uh, lack of ability to write whatever it is that we need to write. Part of that feels like a, probably a good thing. I think overall I think that technology outstrips wisdom and the fact that we're hitting some real roadblocks is is interesting. Is it, am I right in thinking that Moore's law, the computing power doubles every 2 years on average, that that's actually beginning to slow as well? I-
1: I've I've heard this too, but then I've heard other people objecting to it, uh, and so I, I'm really not a technology person, so I'm I'm not entirely sure who to trust. Uh, but yeah, so so the the death of Moore's law um, has been proclaimed a few times already. <laughs> so at this point, I'm not really sure to trust. There's also this entire problem that with the world economy after the pandemic and all the supply chain issues, it might not you know it might be an anomaly in the data. So uh, it's maybe maybe a little bit unfair.
0: Yes, of course that. Makes- Makes sense. How come? How come nobody gets any younger? Why aren't Why aren't any of us getting any younger?
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, in that we've we believe we figured out part of the answer. Um, so in, in physics, this goes under the problem of the error of time. Why does time seem to look different in one direction um, than in the other? And, um, we believe we understand part of it. Uh, part of it is just that, um, certain chains of events, uh, are very likely to happen, whereas others are unlikely. So things are likely to break. Um, disorder is likely to increase. Um, but it's very unlikely that things spontaneously unbreak and it's very unlikely for order spontaneously to decrease, which is just another way of saying that entropy normally increases. Um, but this, of course, brings up the question like if entropy constantly increases, why was it small in the past to begin with? And um, the way that we currently deal with it is that we just say, well, the universe was born with a small entropy, and we have no idea why, and that makes everything work. And, and that's true, but it, 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 we have no idea why this was the case. And it, it's again, it's a question about the initial state, which we already discussed when we were talking about the beginning of the universe. So it's one of those um, issues where we we currently don't even know how to answer the question. It's one of the. It's a question that Penrose is actually trying to answer with his. Um, psychic universe
0: mm. and how do you envision from a physics perspective, how do you envision time? Is everything happening at once
1: <laughs> Well um at, uh, at least in our current theories, time is the dimension. Um, So, of course, if you map out space and time, then it's not that everything is happening at once. Um, It's just that the, the whole thing together is one mathematical construct that just sits there. It's not that there's one particular moment, which we call the present moment, that is special in any regard. I mean, it's special in our perception, but then you could say in our perception Uh, each moment is special at some moment in time. So in that sense, they're all equal, if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) Would this be kind of the same as saying, because I'm stood in this spot right now, this is the spot which is special to me. But if I was stood in a slightly different spot, that would be in terms of the three dimensions, right, of space. And time is sort of an equally arbitrary choice of now and then now and then now again.
1: Yeah, it's very similar, except that in space you can go back and forth, whereas in time you can't.
0: Why is that the case, that there is an arrow of time, that it has directionality at all?
1: (laughs) Well, that's what I just said. We have only um, half of the answer, right? So if you're asking, like, why can't you go back in time, it's because you were already there. And um, so, if you were allowed to um, to do it a second time, then that could lead to all kinds of uh, causal paradoxes. This is the the usual problem with with time travel. I'm mm. afraid. So that and it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh,
0: well, if you say so. Look, Sabina Hossenfelder, ladies and gentlemen. If people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you're doing, you've got your YouTube channel, which is blowing up now, and your Twitter and your new book. Where should they go?
1: Um. Well, just Google my name because it's not a very common name and you'll find more out about me than you ever wanted to know.
0: Sabina, I appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Sorry if you have been spiralled into a three-week-long depression because of learning about free will, but you will come out of it on the other side. Don't forget that there is a 15% discount on the best men's jewellery from Crafted London by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and the code MW15 at checkout. You can get a free sample pack of all eight element flavours with your first box by going to drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom. And you can get a 20% discount on the highest quality CBD products from Pure Sport by going to bit.ly slash Wisdom and the code MW20 a checkout. I'll see you next time.